Good morning. How are we doing? You know, I think uh, in any public speaking engagement you take, the advice you get is always leave them with one point. You leave them with one thing to remember. I don't think anybody's remember anything I have to say this entire time. Well, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Luke. Uh, I am, of course, Pastor Brian's and Miss Raquel's son, uh, their second oldest. I am living currently in Houston, Texas. I'm working at a church called Seven Mile Road down there. Of course, I worked here for a little while, uh, learned so much here, uh, grew so much here, and it's just, it was so, uh, I'm just so glad I got to be here to witness Miss Kim's big day, and of course, she is not here. Uh, she has left the room, but uh, I'm sure there is uh, in the off chance that this service is being recorded and the off chance that Kim watches this in the future someday and she happens to make it past the proposal point and gets to this point, I want to look in the camera and let uh, Miss Kim know and everybody know just how much she means to me. Um, I just, I, she's, she's Miss Kim, now she's Aunt Kim. I don't know how that's, um, that'll be fun. Um, but I would incur, I guess my only... My only advice for my Uncle Chris is, is, is to not, you know those weddings where they have the bride's side sit on one side and then the groom's, you know, if you're there for the groom sit on one side, it's going to be pretty awkward when Chris's entire family is on the bride's side of that room. So Uncle Chris, do not, I would just have, you know, random uh, general seating for, for the wedding. But Miss Kim, uh, I love you so much. We love you so much. I, I just, I'm so glad to uh, see you get, uh, well, not what you deserve. I don't know if that's... Um, we Miss Kim is so amazing. We love her so dearly, and Chris is all right. So, um, anyway, all right, we've got a I've got a message to preach, guys. So let's get into it. We're going to be in Psalm 37 today. Will you pray for me as we get into God's Word? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and hear from your Word. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes and reveal yourself to each and every one of us. This morning, God, and do what you can, and we pray that uh, you would bless um, Miss Kim and my Uncle Chris, God, bless their upcoming marriage, God, be with them, and may you turn Chris somehow miraculously into a deserving man of Miss Kim. Pray to us all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Psalm 37, we're all going to remember all of this, right? Okay, so if we can get, I'm just going to read really quickly right through Psalm 37 here. We've got seven verses. I'll just read through it quickly. Verse 1 of Psalm 37. This is a psalm of David, as many psalms are. Verse 1, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act, making your way righteous, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in His way. So we're going to park in different parts of this, uh, these seven verses in different uh, spots today, but we're going to focus right now. I want to park in verse. Five and six. I want to take a moment right there. Commit your ways to the Lord and your righteousness will shine. I think many of us in this room would call ourselves Christians. I think that would be uh, this a picture, this picture that this is painting in verses five and six, a person whose ways are committed to the Lord, their righteousness shines like the dawn, their 
justice like the noonday. I think that's a picture that we all would love to see of ourselves. We look at ourselves 10 years, 15 years in the future, we would say, I hope that that's me. I hope that my righteousness shines. I'm committed to the Lord and all those things. And I think that's a, that's a noble desire to have. But sometimes I look at certain people in my life and I look at them and I feel like there are certain people that embody this. I feel like they, they're committed to the Lord. Their righteousness shines. I don't quite know if I ever have what it takes to get there. We've got my dad. We've got my mom, Pastor Tom in front. We've got Tim Keller is one of my favorite. He's one of my heroes of the faith. When I think of guys like that, I think of one of my heroes who's not a Christian at all, but Tom Stoltman. If you don't know who that is, he is the two-time world's strongest man. A few months ago, uh, I got to, if you don't know, the sport of strongman is very popular elsewhere in the world. It's not very popular in America, but I love it. It's, I, I love pro strongman. I've been rooting for Tom Stoltman for quite some time. Um, he's a Scottish strongman, and I've been rooting for him before he made it big. So he's now the two-time back-to-back world's strongest man, one of the only guys to ever win back-to-back. It's a huge deal. He's amazing. And I went to a small you know, competition. It wasn't like the World's Strongest Man competition, but it's a small competition in the circuit. On the, on the rare occasion, they do have competitions in America, and it was three hours away. And luckily, Alex and Bobby were living in Round Rock at the time, so I got to say hey to them. Um, but I got to meet Tom Stoltman. Went to Round Rock, got to meet him, and if, I think we have a picture of me with him. Do we have a picture of me with him? We don't have a picture of me with Tom. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's me with a giant. Tom Stoltman is six foot eight, 450 pounds. Um, and when you meet a guy like that, it's honestly, the height is not so shocking. You'd think six, eight is a beast. It's, he's just, he, he's wide. He's so wide. You wouldn't even, so for the, for the picture, of course, he puts his arm around me and I'm just ready for an unsuspecting typical arm. And he puts his arm, and he's not prepared for, he's an absolute beast and he's just endlessly wide his belly his power they call it in, uh, in world's strongest man terms they call it the power belly his big old fat belly these, these guys he's got this huge belly and it's just i couldn't eat. anyway he's massive i wish we had a picture to show you but i guess i neglected to get that to the guys out back that's my fault anyway six eight four fifty try to picture that in your brain so when i look at there's there's certain times where i look at guys like Tim Keller, like Pastor Brian, like Pastor Tom, all these different people, they look like a 450-pound giant to me. Because you'd think when you meet your hero, I, you know, I hate to talk about this on a Sunday morning, but I like lifting, I, I enjoy getting stronger. And when you meet a guy like that, you think it's inspiring and you, it would make you want to work harder and like, oh man, I, I want to be like him. Because, And then you meet him and you realize, what am I, why do I even lift? What's the point? I have no shots here. What are we, what are we doing? This is pointless. I should give up today. I have not lifted once since that day. I completely gave up ever since then. And I look at guys like Pastor Tom, Tim Keller, my dad. It's like, I just feel like they don't face the same obstacles that I'm facing. Am I the only one that kind of looks at guys like this? Like, do they not face temptation the same way I face temptation? Are they... I look at the life of my dad like that's a six foot eight, four hundred fifty pound giant. Like why even why do it? But this is a, these, this is a picture guys like guys like Tim Keller, my, some of my heroes. These are pictures of guys that have committed their way to the Lord. Their righteousness is, their righteousness is shining. Their justice like the noon day. And so how do we how how do guys like this? How do we arrive to a point where we can actually say of ourselves, I'm committed to the Lord and my righteousness is not just like dimly flickering, my righteousness is shining, like it's my justice like the noonday. How do we get to a point where we can say these kinds of things? We're going to see in this psalm, there's a, there's a pretty clear progression in this psalm, which, which each verse kind of leads us into the next. So verse 4 comes right before 5 and 6 that we're focusing on. What does verse 4 say? Verse 4 gives us the answer. It leads us into verses 5 and 6. 
What does it say? Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. How does delight lead us into righteousness? How does delight in a heart that is satisfied in the Lord, how do these things take us into a place of righteousness? I'll tell you how. It's a truth about you, it's a truth about me that we sometimes don't want to admit, because if we admit this about ourselves, it makes us it makes us feel like we're not pious enough, we're not reverent enough of God to admit something like this. But the truth about you and me is you want to be happy. Are you shocked to hear that? Is that surprising that you want you want to be happy? I want to be happy. And this verse, what, what this progression is showing us is take delight in the Lord and delight in a satisfied heart will enable us to, be, to, enable us to commit our ways to the Lord, which will make our way righteous. He will give us our heart's desires, which will lead us into this. What is verse 4 describing? Look at the, imagine the type of person that verse 4 is describing. A person who is delighting in the Lord and whose heart is satisfied. Their heart's desires are fulfilled. I think it's a pretty desirable place to be. And as we're going to, we're not quite there yet, but we're going to see in the progression of this psalm that, that delight and uh, satisfaction in the Lord leads us into a commitment with the Lord. How happy would you be if your heart's desires were satisfied in God? Of course, the immediate problem that comes up that we, at least that I think of when I read that is, all my desi- he will satisfy all the desires of my hearts. He will give you all the desires of your hearts. That's... Like, oh, Luke, I don't know. I don't think you know all the desires in my heart. I don't think God wants to satisfy the majority of those desires, let alone all the desires of my heart. Notice what this verse is not saying. He's not saying, conjure up delight. He's not saying, produce delight. It's not a delight that comes from within you. It's not of you. It is take delight. It is outside of you. It is outside of you. Take it. Take delight, a delight that comes from God, not from you, and a delight that comes from the Lord is a delight that will satisfy. A joy that you don't earn, don't create on your own, a joy that comes from God, a joy that comes from the Father will truly satisfy and will not run out. Verse 5, again, delight, be satisfied, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, trust in Him, and you will act making your way righteous. You will act, and your own way will be made righteous by your own grit and effort. Right? No. Okay. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act making... Look at all the primary verbs here. Belong not to us. They belong to God. He will act making our way righteous. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noon day. So therefore, and then what does this take us right to? Verse 7, be silent. That word be silent is damam in the, in the Hebrew. It just means to be still. Be still, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly, wait in faith for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. Verse 7, do not be agitated. Verse 1, do not be agitated. You've got the reminder twice. Do not be agitated. Do not be agitated. It's a do not be agitated sandwich with the answer of how to not be agitated right in between both of them. Yes? Following? Okay. In verse, and we, we have this, and, and verses 1 and 7 stand in contrast to a lot of Scripture that we read. If you spend any time in the Psalms, the Ecclesi- there's, there's places all over Scripture where, you, where you'll, you'll read, and you'll see a lot of agitation at evildoers. You'll see a lot of agitation at, God, why am 
I struggling? Why am I living in the way of righteousness? And why are the evil prospering? Why are the, why are the wicked prospering? If we can go to that next verse in, where is it in? If we can go to that next slide. Not that one. Not that one. I can find it. Ecclesiastes. we got a pastor up front. Ecclesiastes. I believe it's Ecclesiastes. I'll just read it to you. <clears throat> All right. We don't have it. This is not Ecclesiastes. Not Ecclesiastes. This is Psalm. That's right. Psalm 73. Do you have Psalm 73? I have it, so don't worry about it. This is, again, Psalm 73. This is in contrast to our do not be agitated sandwich. We, we see these, things, these verses all throughout Scripture. This is, uh, this is Asaph uh, writing this psalm. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. How can God know? Is there, is there knowledge in the Most High? He's asking a rhetorical question. Is there knowledge in the Most High? Does God even know what's going on? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my... I have been clean and innocent in vain. Now, is this, this is a prayer offered up to God. Is this theologically correct? Are, are, are keeping our hearts clean and, and washing our hands in innocence, are these things done in vain? Of course not. But this is a prayer offered up to God. That's a whole different message on a theology of prayer and the types of prayers that God responds to and wants to hear from us. But you should feel encouraged to pray honestly to God, even if it feels non-reverent and non-honoring. He wants to hear these kinds of emotions from you. But this, are, are, if we can go back to, yeah, here we are. If we can go back here, do not be agitated, do not be agitated. We hear, here in Psalm 73, Asaph is pretty agitated at the profiting, at the prospering of those who do evil. When he is, has kept his heart clean and washed his hands in innocence, and he's seemingly profited nothing, so he's asking, is it all done in vain? Our psalm, and again, our psalm starts here by telling us, do not be agitated by these things. Why? Why are we not agitated by it? For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Do not be agitated for it's going to be over soon. It'll all be over soon. It's, it'll, it'll wither quickly. This will all be yours. It, it actually, in verse, in verse 9, verse 9 says, those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The land, everything you see them profiting, everything you, st- you think they are gaining, that they're going to have eternally, it'll be yours soon. Just, it'll be over soon. Just wait. It'll be over soon. So you have this idea that you're, we're starting to see of, do not be agitated by evildoers because quickly it'll all be over. Is this idea of borrowing from future joy. Like, yes, all these things, they're yours in the future, so look to them now. Borrow now from that future joy that's going to be available to all of us. So just wait. Just wait. It will all be yours. Every good thing you see the wicked enjoying, it will all be yours. But what do we do in those moments in Psalm 73 when Asaph is complaining and and griping and just feels like all his efforts are in vain, they're for nothing? What do we do when things are going like they are for Asaph when things aren't going so great? Again, let's look back at the construction of this psalm. Don't be agitated. Don't be agitated. And what's the answer to the non-agitation sandwich? It, was, it is trust in the Lord. 
Take delight. He'll satisfy your heart. Enabling, because a satisfied heart is able to commit their ways to the Lord. He will act on your behalf, making your way righteous. What is the first thing we're told? What is the first direction we're given? The first direction we're given is to trust. Now, I, wanna, I want us to take our main takeaway to be to, today to be delight and joy, but there's a reason that trust comes before delight and joy. The reason that trust comes before delight and joy is because you cannot enjoy things, you cannot delight in things that you are convinced are not from God. Only if you first trust that God has brought these things into your life, even the things that we don't like, you cannot properly enjoy the things in, their, in the purpose that they are serving for our lives. So again, agitation, trust, joy. He'll make you righteous, so don't be agitated. You, can't, you cannot take joy in things you don't believe that God is working for your good. Romans 8.28 literally says God is working things for the, for the good of those. He's working together all things, he says. He's working together all things for the good of those who love him. The who love him is a very important part of that. So for those who love him, he's working all things for our good. So we then should take joy and delight in all things. So are we caught up on the rough outline of this psalm? Don't be agitated. I'm going to keep saying it until we're beating the head with it because I don't think you're going to remember anything else today other than Miss Kim. Don't be agitated. Trust in the Lord. Delight in Him. A delight in Him will lead to a satisfied heart which enables us to live righteously. Are we there? Great. Okay. So, and now that we have this brief outline of the psalm, I feel like some, some of us have heard this story before, especially if you know my mom pretty well. Uh, when I was about 10-ish years old, something like that, uh, my parents took me and my older brother Brian to a conference in South Carolina. Was I 10? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and we go to this, I don't even remember what the conference was, to be honest with you. We were just along for the ride, and my dad, and my mom and dad were there for something. And this is right in the middle of a point in my life where I'd say my mom was probably more concerned about my well-being than ever before. For one specific reason. I woke up every morning, and all I wanted to do was play Legos until I went to bed. She could not pull me from my Legos. All I wanted to do all day was play Legos. Of course, I'm a pastor's kid, so people knew me, and they knew my love for Legos. So they would come and give me, hey, Luke, we got the Millennium Falcon for you. Here it is, the Lego set. Go home and build it. And like, oh, thanks. And I'd take it home, bring it. I had this huge tub of loose Legos. I would open up the Millennium Falcon box, throw out the directions, and dump the parts into my loose collection of Legos because following instructions is for losers. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to take all these new unique pieces and build something weird and fun, and that's just my personality. So I'm going to, that's, that's how I, and I would do that all day. And my mom is growing concerned because you got this 10 year old kid who he will not accept any responsibility in his life. He's not doing anything. He's not productive. He's, he's useless. He's just playing Legos. He's not doing anything. And it's funny, but that's, leg that's a legitimate concern of a mother. How is this kid going to be a productive member of society if, I, if I, I can't even get him to come eat dinner because he's busy playing Legos? And also, how is this kid going to serve the Lord? He's he, he doesn't, he's not preaching the gospel. He's not serving the poor and the destitute. He's not doing the things that the Bible commands, all of which are good things. He's just playing Legos. How is this? So this is all that's kind of going on in my mom's heart while we're at this conference. This is like, this is the, her primary concern, the most stressed she's ever been about my mental well-being um, is, is right now. So we're in South Carolina 
And this, we're like approached, I don't understand the fully the context, I was 10, but we're approached by this couple. And this guy says to my mom, he doesn't say it to me, he doesn't say it to my dad. He says to my mom, he goes, I don't know why I'm saying this, this might mean nothing, I don't really know, I, but I feel like I have to tell you this. Points at me, says, God loves to watch him play Legos. And my mom was about 5% as surprised as Miss Kim was a few minutes ago. She, she had this, listen to her, she used to have her tell the story, this, this rush of confusion, but also just peace of like, what? This, my primary concern over this boy's life has just been alleviated. God loves to watch him play Legos. Have you been reading? How do you know? What do you know about this kid? You know, and all this confusion. I'll be honest with you. I'm a little, I'm a little sketchy on prophecies and things like that. If you give me a prophecy, I'll be like, oh, thanks. But anyway, but I, this one's kind of hard to deny. And, and this is also in the midst, and this is not criticizing my parents. They would tell you this. This is at a time in their life where they, I would say, and they would, would admit they did not have a great understanding of the character of God at this point in their life. They they, they were victims to the American gospel that teaches that in order to please God, you've got to produce, get all these things together. You've got to offer up people that you're sharing the gospel with, all the people you're serving, all of which are good things but are not justifying acts before God. We think that we need to do and produce all these things. And so she's concerned that her son is producing nothing. He's a valueless member of society. And to hear this brand new category given to her of not only is God okay with it, he loves to watch this punk kid just play Legos, that she did not have a theological category for God enjoying a useless kid. She had no, she had no, I don't know how else, she had no theological category for not only just a kid, but a God who is so good and filled with joy and love and mercy and compassion that he's not demanding this kid produce works on the behalf of God. He's happy and content to watch this little kid play Legos. And fortunately, it wasn't just some weird prophecy that she just took. Fortunately, this idea is all throughout Scripture, and she went and investigated Scripture for this idea and found it everywhere, all throughout Scripture. If we wanted to take tackle 2% of all the scriptures that address this specific topic of God's character and his joy in us, we'd be here all day. But for the sake of time, just take that story and trust that this idea is only is in this verse and in many other verses all throughout scripture. So, with a God who enjoys his people, even when they produce nothing on his behalf, a God who deals with us like this, a God like this is worth serving. He's worth committing to. When we, are, when we are satisfied in him, when he is enjoying us, when we are doing nothing of value, he is still, he's enjoying us and we should therefore enjoy him and be satisfied in him, which will enable us to commit ourselves to him and have a righteousness that shines. If we can pull up the 2 Corinthians verse, if we have that, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians, this is, it's, uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul to the people in Corinth, and I'll just I'll read it out to you. I've got to go find it now. Um, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's speaking about the Macedonians, uh, which we don't have time to get into all that because I'm running a little bit low on time because Miss Kim had to go fall in love. Um, <laughs> sorry, I love you, Miss Kim. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8. We don't have it? Okay, so for 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For in, again, this is Paul talking about, talking about the Macedonians to the Corinthians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I'll read that again. For in a severe, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I happen to know some poor people, happen to be one of them. I can promise you, extreme poverty does not overflow into generosity. Nothing about poverty leads to generosity. And there's a lot, there's a lot of affliction. This is the word that Paul uses here. They, they, they were under, undergoing a severe test of affliction. Their extreme poverty overflowed into generosity. What has to be going on for poverty to be turned into generosity? What must you combine poverty with in order for that to overflow into generosity? If we had the verse on screen here, I could point to the word. The word's joy. Joy, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I could understand, in my brain, I could understand, I could be generous, I could be righteous, I could be, I could be faithful in strength. Like, I've got a few things I'm good at, a few things I'm bad at, but I, in, in my strength, maybe I could have my strength overflow into generosity and service towards others and all these things. But in my weakness, in my poverty, in poverty, my poverty overflowing into generosity, my poverty overflowing into righteousness, the thing that needs to be combined with our poverty, with our weakness, in order for it to overflow into righteousness and generosity is joy. It worked for the Macedonians and it will work for you as well. So combine your weakness with joy and God can transform your weakness into a wealth of righteousness. So I hope I've repeated myself enough and made things clear that the idea of joy being our strength, uh, joy being our strength for godly living is all throughout the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8 literally says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy is a literal strength that enables us to commit ourselves to the Lord and have a bright, shining righteousness. But why? Why joy? Why, did, why has God created us in a way where joy has been weaponized into a, the, the ultimate ammunition for our righteousness and for righteous living? <clears throat> we have Zephaniah chapter 3. I got a funny feeling we're not going to have that slide. And also, we're running a little bit late on time. So, we're just going to skip Zephaniah. I'm going to hope you'll take me at the word that the Bible does speak to the character of God as a triune being who, even before he created the earth, even before he created you and me, he was existing eternally in his triune nature, enjoying himself. Is, uh, that's the bullet point of it. Sorry, we're not going to get into the verse right now. But it is an essential characteristic of God that even before he created the heavens and the earth, he was enjoying his triune self, the, the, the three persons of God were enjoying one another because joy is inextricable from God's character. And so he has created a world where joy is at the foundation of all of our righteousness. Joy is at the foundation of everything. It is for joy, Hebrews 12 said, 
that he that Jesus endured the cross. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. That is the ammunition behind everything that God does, and he does not expect anything different from us. And so that's why we are commanded. Not It's not a suggestion. It's not a helpful tip all throughout Scripture. We are commanded, just like we're commanded to not murder. We're commanded to take joy. It is a command all throughout Scripture. It's not an option. It's not a helpful bonus tip on your path of righteousness. It is the ammunition. It is the bedrock. It is the foundation of righteous living itself. And it is the foundation of our relationship with God is joy through the purchase of Jesus Christ. And so that means that we should take joy in the bad things, in the hard things, in our affliction, just like the Macedonians. And it also means we should take joy in the good things. I think we forget to take joy in the good things because we're sometimes more focused on taking joy in the bad things that's when we need it. That's when we need to draw on the joy that is available to us. But with God's nature, with God's character being that of joy, we should also not forget to enjoy God in the good things as well. So tonight when you go home, after dinner and you are eating a bowl of ice cream, eat the bowl of ice cream to the glory of God. And that's not a joke. I, I, me and my, 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 some of my best friends down in Texas, we every, if I can just confess some sin to you guys really quick, me, every, uh, we've been doing this for years, every Friday night we get together and we talk about God. We talk, we, we pick a theological topic and we go over it. It's our favorite thing. We're a bunch of young nerds and we just talk theology. And we smoke cigars and, you know, drink rum and talk theology. That's what we do. And I'm not, and this is, I'm not, I'm not parroting this up just to make a point and then exaggerating it for the sake of this message. I literally mean it. We regularly, regularly remind one another. It is a theme of our Friday night cigar night that we call it. I only do one a week. Don't stress. Just one cigar a week. It's not that bad. It's probably pretty bad. But one time a week we get together and we remind ourselves each time we do this to the glory of God. We do this to the joy of the Father because before the foundations of the earth, he saw it fit to gift us with these things to share in his joy through these things. Joy is an essential part of God's nature and so we should enjoy these things through him. When I sit down after church today to watch some football, I will enjoy football to the glory of the Father. God saw, and it's, it is funny, but it's, it is theologically true to say that God created football in part for me to enjoy. And he created a new, the 2023 New England Patriots because I needed some character development, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and it's doing a work in me, let me tell you. <laughs> One more, one more quick story about childhood, Luke. I, I, was, uh, this, I was probably six years old. We actually pulled up the home video the other day and watched the recording of this whole event. But I was probably about six years old, and I was playing outside, and I saw this map floating in the wind, and I went and picked it up. And in Luke's six-year-old brain, the kind of kid who doesn't follow Lego instructions, this kid saw this map and said, it's a treasure map. There's pirates, there's booty at the end of the, at the X here. The pirates apparently prefer to use MapQuest. It was really great that they were using MapQuest. So I, it was, they, this, this MapQuest map was blowing in the wind, and I saw it as a pirate's treasure map. And so I bring it upstairs, show it to my mom. Mom, I found a treasure map. And she goes, oh, that's, oh, yeah, Luke, that's great. And so I beg her, Mom, let's follow it. Let's go find the treasure. Let's go find this gold and so she obliges. She doesn't go right then. She takes, the ne- she takes me the next day or a couple days later. She gives herself time to orchestrate this entire little thing. And so my dad and my mom, 
we all get in the car a few days later, and we start following this map. And so there, my mom's holding it. She's like, oh, Luke, it's taking us up here. It's taking us up here. We drive all the way around town. And fortunately, the, uh, the, the treasure map led us right to 31 Flavors on the way, which was a great, it was very nice of the pirates to do that for us. And we go, we get some ice cream, and then the map takes us all. We used to live in this street where there was a golf course right up, kind of right behind our house. And so it led us to the golf course, and we had to get on foot. And then just me and my dad, we walked all the way. And fortunately, the pirate's treasure map led us right to our backyard. We get to the backyard, and there's a big X on this tree. I'm like, there it is. There's the X. And so we start digging, and my dad is, gets the shovel out. And so I take it from him, and I start digging. And I'm digging through the dirt, and I hear clunk. And it's like, we found it. And so I just frantically, I'm digging through everything, and I pull out this little chest, and I open it up, and gold. I'm rich. I am. We have made it. And it's in, in my six-year-old brain, I'm convinced that this is real pirate booty. And in my head, I'm just, I'm like, Mom, Dad, you're welcome. New car, new house. You guys are lucky to have me around. I found this map. I, am, I have produced a wealth of generosity on your part. This, you guys are, you're fortunate to have me. And I, can't, I, I think about, that's just, I mean, that was such a, I can't, I will never forget that moment of just pulling out the treasure and finding buried pirate treasure I think about it a lot, and I, every time I think about it, I can't help but think of just how accurately that scenario maps onto my relationship with God, where I am so frantically digging and thinking I'm producing something of value. I'm looking at my dad, I'm looking at my earthly father, and holding this up and saying, look at this gold, aren't you proud of me? Isn't this awesome? And he's like, it's dollar store jewelry. It's, I don't, I, this was... This entire scenario was contrived for no other reason other than for a father to enjoy his son and for a son to enjoy his father. And if that joy only went one way, it wouldn't be as powerful. Mutual joy is made exponential when the fa- if, if I pulled out that, that pirate booty and I was like, oh, okay, well, this kind of sucks. His, my, I would have robbed my father of joy. But because our joy was mutual, because it was shared, that I was, Dad, look what we found. Oh my, because the joy was mutual, it was made exponential. And because this entire scenario was concocted by my father, simply for no other reason other than to enjoy me, I was able to enjoy this concocted, contrived situation with my parents. It delighted my parents to delight in me. And so they went to the effort. They went to all this work. They put all this work together to contrive a scenario just to watch a six-year-old kid smile and laugh and get excited. And so we don't have to hesitate to surrender to Christ. We don't have to worry that a life with Christ is a life that lacks. We don't have to worry that a life with Christ is a life of restriction. We look at monks and nuns and we assume that that's all they're pious they're the ones truly honoring God because they have they're so restricted and they have limited all these joys in their life you will not find anywhere in scripture God scolding people for joy seeking he will scold them for seeking for joy in the wrong places he always directs us back to seeking joy in him so instead of worrying about missing out on the joy that will be had if we commit ourselves to God we should instead worry about the joy that we will miss out on if we do not follow, and commit ourselves to the Father. Your desire to be happy is not a bad desire, so be happy in God. 
And this is all because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. By his life, works, and death on a cross, and his resurrection, conquering death. Who is soon to return to make your joy finally complete, if you are in Christ. One final scripture as we close. Do we have the 2 Corinthians 4? I'm hoping we do have this one, because this is a big one. And we don't. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll just read it out to you. This is uh, Paul speaking again to the Corinthians. He says, these light and momentary afflictions, speaking of what they're going through, these light and momentary afflictions. Let's pause right there. Light and momentary. Great. Thanks, Paul. Another example of the Bible, of Scripture, of God, of the church, not understanding my afflictions. Not understanding what I go through, not taking seriously, delegitimizing all that I go through, delegitimizing my pain. They don't. This is not light. This is not momentary. This, this is heavy, and I've been dealing with it for my entire life. You don't know anything about what's been going on in my life. It is not. My afflictions are not light. They are not momentary. The whole verse is Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seventeen. For these light and momentary afflictions, I can find my verse. These light and momentary affliction, these afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison. Paul is not saying that your afflictions are light and momentary. He is saying that they are light and momentary in comparison to the glory that awaits us. For this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison. In comparison to the weight of glory, your afflictions are light and momentary. They are not light and momentary. They are heavy and they last a long time, but in comparison to the glory that comes, they are light and momentary. And the word producing, your afflictions are producing for us a glory that is beyond comparison. That word producing, that, that word from the Greek literally does translate to producing, meaning, meaning to, to make effectual, to, to conjure. Your afflictions are producing a glory. What, this, what Paul is telling us here is that your afflictions are not arbitrary, they're not generic. It's not a, it's not a generic set, an arbitrary set of afflictions just for some character development in your story that will one day all be gone and we'll, we'll forget about it and then you'll have glory eternally. Paul is telling us here that our afflictions are producing a glory, a particular glory. At the end of time, you will be face to face with Jesus and you will look back on your life and you will see how Jesus and God, before the beginning of time, predestined a particular set of afflictions that would produce and illuminate and make sweeter a particular glory in your life. So when you take stock of your life and look at the afflictions of your life, do not think that they are just arbitrary trials to be conquered and then to be passed on and get over. When you face, when you are face to face with Jesus at the end of time, you will be able to look and see at the glory that is now yours for eternity and see how your particular afflictions, the afflictions, that, the things that you are afflicted with in this very moment, you will see how for eternity those things are producing in you a particular glory that you will get for the current afflictions that you are walking through right now. Whether it's, whether it's marriage or children or work or 
sickness or singleness or relationships, God is crafting for you a particular glory that is soon to be revealed, that is even now being produced in your afflictions. So look at your afflictions and see them for what they are, not a pointless, generic set of circumstances, but a specific affliction that is producing a glory that is so great that your current situation will seem light and momentary in comparison. So we should now borrow from that eternal glory that will soon be ours eternally and take the joy that is available to us even now because God is not our taskmaster demanding that we produce goods on his behalf. You have, through Christ, if you are in Christ, then through Christ you have already been made right. The work is finished. Your righteousness, it, it, it's, you are a little kid playing Legos. You are a six-year-old child digging and digging in the dirt, thinking that you are producing something of value for God, saying, God, is this, are you finally, in my insecurity, God, are you finally proud of me? Are you finally happy with what I've done? Is this enough? It's dollar store jewelry. God is all self-sufficient. He created the universe from his word. You have nothing to offer him. You have nothing to give him that he does not already need, that is not totally satisfied in his own self-sufficient nature. The dollar store jewelry that you are offering up to him offers him nothing that he does not already have. It is, it is meaningless to him. Isaiah calls our works filthy rags before God. In your insecurity, do not think that you are offering anything up to God that he needs. Instead, understand that the process of digging for that righteousness, digging for the commitment to God that is valuable and that we should commit, these things that we should do, understand it for what it is, a concocted, contrived scenario that God designed for you because in his goodness and in his joy, he saw fit to share joy with you through your life and through your afflictions. So quit digging for dollar store jewelry and enjoy enjoy your Legos. Dig for the treasure because you can trust before joy, before delight in the Lord comes trust because we can trust that God has already made all things right through Christ, through his atoning substitutionary sacrifice. Christ, if you are only in faith, if you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then your works have been, your bad works have been washed away. You've been made perfect and blameless. Your resume has been erased. All of your sins have been washed away, and you get to replace, you get to put your name on Jesus Christ's resume on the day of judgment. And God will ask you on the throne, how do you plead? Why should I let you into eternity, into eternal glory forever? And the only answer, the only answer that will be, if you, if you for a moment say, well, I did this, I did, look at the, look at the joy. Plead the blood of Jesus. Remove your resume, substitute it with Christ's resume, because he substituted himself for you on the cross. The wrath that your sin deserves was put on Christ. And so the blessing and honor that Christ earned and deserves can be put on you if only we put our faith in Christ. So enjoy your Legos, dig for the treasure, and put your trust in God because he is not in need. He is not needy. He is not insufficient. He is not frantic. He is sufficient. And he is longing to enjoy you and enjoy you eternally. God, thank you.
Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you that you saw it fit to enjoy each of us. Thank you that in your goodness and in your good character, your good nature, before the beginning of time, God, you saw it fit to enjoy and take delight in those that would believe in you. So God, I pray for those in the room, God, who have not put their faith, their trust, and their hope in you, God. We know that my words are empty and meaningless without the working of your Holy Spirit. So pray that you would work in those that don't know you and those that do know you, God. Continue to soften our hearts and open our eyes and reveal yourself to us, God. Because you are good and you are worthy of our praise, you are worthy of our honor, and you are worthy of our commitment because you have made us happy in you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.